ultimately, if you're going to change the trajectory of your mental health journey, you're going to have to make a decision that puts yourself first. And people don't like to put themselves first, but sometimes we have to. And the people that really support you and love you and want you to flourish in life will be clapping for you as you put yourself first. Hey everyone, Emily Abadi here. You are listening to episode 159 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I sit down with inspiring individuals to talk about their big wins, tough moments, and everything in between. On the show, you can expect vulnerability, motivation, and candid discussions with everyone from top athletes and CEOs to aspiring entrepreneurs on what it really takes to follow your passions. My mission is simple, to inspire you to be your best self, move with intention, and have some fun along the way. Today on the show, I am so, so amped to be bringing you my conversation with Victoria Garrick. Victoria is a former D1 volleyball player, a TED Talk speaker, and mental health advocate. She was a four-year starter at USC where she won a Pac-12 championship and finished her career with the top five most digs in program history. Now, you may know her for a few reasons. One, she's got a awesome podcast called Real Pod. Her 2017 TED Talk called The Hidden Opponent has been viewed over 370,000 times. And I mean, she's been featured a ton of places from the Players Tribune and People Magazine, USA Today College, and has over 1 million followers on her social media platforms. Super, super grateful for Victoria's time today, where we really dive into the nitty gritty. We talk about her mental health journey and how she really struggled to find balance in college, arguably wondering if that was even possible while juggling sports and school and her classes and tutoring and some sort of a social life. And we talk a lot about the ins and outs of therapy, her experience with therapy, also her experience with going on antidepressants, then going off of antidepressants and what that was like for her. Frankly, Victoria's honesty and openness about these difficult topics, it's why I love following her. I'm sure it is why many other people feel the same. And I'm so, so excited to bring her story to the show today. Before we get into it this week, I do want to take a moment to give some love to my friends at Beam. I've been talking about it on the show for weeks now. I am about to move and let me tell you, my anxiety is through the charts. I have been leaning into Beam products perhaps now more than ever to navigate. I'm talking their focus capsules, which essentially just make me feel like I quote unquote can even. They're loaded with their THC-free hemp powder, lion's mane, rhodiola, ashwagandha, ginkgo biloba, great stuff, which helps me power through whatever the day is throwing my way. And then also at night when my mind is going a thousand miles an hour, I have been leaning in to their dream blend, which essentially tastes like a cinnamon hot chocolate. It has got relaxing compounds like melatonin, magnesium, and L-theanine, plus, of course, their nano CBD powder, which adds to my nighttime routine to help me wind down, get to sleep, stay to sleep, and just (sighs) exhale. 
Of course, I have an awesome deal for you. Head on over to beamtlc.com. That's B-E-A-M-T-L-C.com and use the code HURDLE at checkout for 15% off. Now, special deal here. If you go for a subscription of the dream, you can get an additional 20% off, which means that using HURDLE at checkout could give you 35% off, plus a free mug, a free frother, all the goodies. Head on over to beamtlc.com. Use Hurdle at checkout to get at least 15% off today. Make sure you're following along with Hurdle over at Hurdle Podcast. I'm over at Emily Abadi. And we've been having a lot of really great conversations over in the Secret Hurdlers Facebook group. A link to get in on that is in the show notes. With that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I am talking with Victoria Garrick. She's a former D1 volleyball player, a TED Talk speaker, host of Real Pod, mental health advocate. Let me just lay down the red carpet for you here. I will get <laughs> such imposter syndrome and run away. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for coming to hang out with me today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I feel like we have a lot of mutual friends. So I was excited to get to speak with you. I know. I actually was scrolling through the real pod feed before and I was like, we have many mutual friends, at least many mutual guests, if we can't actually call them yeah, IRL friends all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought as well. <laughs> well, I'm excited to have you here. I'll I'll be real with you. My intern, I think it was I'd seen, I'd watched your TED talk, but I didn't know that real pod existed yet. And my intern, I think two to three months ago, maybe was like, you need to listen to this episode of Real Pod. It's so great. And then I was like, oh my God, me and this woman are just like completely on the same wavelength. Forgive me for taking the reins here, but you're a podcaster and I'm, I was listening to a podcast today and I literally felt like, God, I, I need to be better interviewing. Like I need to be X, Y, Z. Like you ever get in those places where you, like you think your show sucks. And so I was listening to Dak Shepard is like my podcast I mean, isn't he everyone's? I mean, he's a freaking brilliant. And I was listening to, I'm so, I'm so crazy. People are gonna hear me. I was listening to an episode where he interviewed a guest that I've interviewed. And I wanted to hear like what questions, like we had the same blank canvas. What did he do with it that I didn't? And how did he steer the convo in the ways that I didn't? And what did he pull from the guest that I didn't? And so I listened to this whole interview and then I went back and listened to mine, you know, and then you think about oh, my interviews and I'm not, and I'm not good. And so I have a hypothesis that you're talking about Alexi Pappas. Yes. Oh my God. I also interviewed Alexi Pappas. Dude, I got to listen to yours and then I can rank us on which of the three to divorce. It's probably me. It's so funny, but I, I can totally appreciate that you said that. And I actually was asking myself this as well when the Meghan Markle Oprah interview came out because the resounding feedback on social media was, and Oprah, like all hail Oprah. Oprah's amazing. She's an, she's a, fabulous interviewer. And I think that sometimes the qualities that good interviewers have in common are typically that they're not scared to ask anything or they're not abiding by some boundary that maybe they set for themselves. So I think that Dax actually is very open with his conversation. He doesn't filter himself at all. And so when he asks questions, there are a lot of the times the same question that the audience wants to know. And he's just not scared to ask it, which was right. the same with Oprah. 
and Meghan Markle. Right. I a hundred percent agree with you. And speaking of the Alexi interview, you know, obviously he pulled from her this really traumatic memory about her mom. And he made some remark of that sounds like something out of a horror movie. And I just thought that's something that I think, but I wouldn't say, but he says it. And and no one thinks twice and no one's offended by that either. And I've also never been in a position where I've interviewed someone and they've said to me, I'm not comfortable or like, I've never even remotely been at a place where I've felt like I've made someone uncomfortable or I've been prying. Hmm. It would be one thing for, for you and I to be cautious of pushing the boundaries. If someone's, if we've done that before, but I haven't, and I'm still extra cautious. So you're right. Like we just need to ask the questions. And even when I get someone on, who's a complete open book, I still sometimes, you know, I never want to offend. And I also think I love what Dax does is he, you, he leads with his vulnerability to open up that space for his guests. And I actually heard him on Tim Ferriss talking about that strategy of like, oh, if I say when I had thoughts of killing myself, then my guest is like, oh, you did too. Well, let me share you mine. And I, mm -hmm. that was the first time I was like, oh, there's power in sharing my story on an interview with my guest. Because formerly I thought I don't want to bring the conversation back to me. I don't want to center myself. I don't want to say, oh yeah, well, when that happened to me, because you know, it, it, it doesn't sound good. And then I was like, wait, Dax does that all the time. And I, I go to Dax's podcast to listen to Dax. And so I've actually been meeting with some mentors in the podcasting industry and kind of asking these questions because no one freaking tells us how to do this. There's no class of podcasting. I'm like on this network and I email someone at the network. I'm like, would any of the bigger shows be open to doing like Q and a night with, with some of us? And they're like, big, big, what are you talking about? They're like, you're on the network. I'm like, what, how did I even get on this network? Like, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. It just, that to me was like, people come to your show to hear you interview the person. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they're here because they want to hear Emily have a conversation with me. They're not here for me. And so that's, I think, something that hosts forget is your listeners do want your insight. They do want to hear a little bit of those I statements. Otherwise, they could listen to Alexi Pappas on another podcast. It's so true. And I think about this all the time. I remember I used to ask when I was getting started out with podcasting, I was like, if you don't like a podcast host's voice, but you love the guests that they get, do you listen to the show? And I used to try to listen to certain shows that I didn't love the host's approach or literally, and this is a little petty, but maybe even like their vocal tone just wasn't my thing. And after a while, I just couldn't hang. I had to go seek out new podcasts. And the good thing for all of us is that there are bazillions of them. Mm -hmm. We all get in our own head about our, our voice and how our voice sounds. Mm -hmm. I have a tendency to talk really loud and fast. And I actually did an interview with Shamika Holdsclaw and she has a fantastic mental illness story and it's going to be coming out next week. And my, one of my editors was like, you were so slow and thought through in this interview and you did a great job. And in that moment, I was like, I was like, I feel like that's a backhanded, most of the time you're too loud and fast, <laughs> <laughs> but that's just like me. That's how, that's how I talk. And if you don't like it, you know, then yeah, you don't have to listen to my show. You can listen to Alexi on Emily's podcast and also <laughs> shout out to Alexi. I feel bad that she's used as our pawn in this example. I know. She's a phenomenal woman and her story is freaking incredible, but that's part of what we do is we have to be present in the interview and remember we're, we have a job here and we're steering a conversation. We aren't just at dinner. If we do a great job, our listeners think they were hearing a dinner convo, but that's, there's some planning in that from us. 
It's so true. It's so true. Now, I know that you went to USC. What did you major in at USC? Journalism. So storytelling. And I thought sports reporting at the time. At the time. Okay. So let's rewind it back even before USC. You also played D1 volleyball there. Were you always really active growing up? Yes. I was a like four sport athlete in middle school. You know, I did basketball, soccer. I ran track. I played volleyball. I was really active as a young kid and yeah, sports were always a big part of my life. Knowing that you loved athletics, how did you decide to lean into one versus the other? It was actually really natural. I never had a sit down moment where I had to make that decision. And I feel really lucky that that was the case for me. My heart naturally chose the sport of volleyball. And basically what happened was eighth grade, I joined a volleyball club team. And, you know, because of that, I couldn't play soccer, I think was like my other favorite sport. And then I wanted to make the ones team the next year. And so that was like my main goal all summer. So it was just like, I kind of got caught up in these volleyball goals and this club world, which most volleyball players know the club volleyball world's like a whole world of its own. So that's just kind of what happened. And then eventually I was like, huh, I don't play any other sports. <laughs> Wait. So talk to, if someone doesn't know what that means to play club volleyball, like talk me through what that means. It's just this crazy culture. Like you've seen dance moms and like toddlers and tiaras. I always joke there should be a reality TV show for volleyball and like young volleyball players. I mean, these convention centers and there's tons of teams and the parents are all involved. And, you know, the teams have these names of the ones team, the twos team and threes team. And the ones team is the best. And, you know, you look back and these coaches that coach 15 year old girls at the time, I'm like, oh my gosh, these coaches are so intense and I want to play for them. And then I grew up and I'm like, you coach 15 year olds in volleyball. And like, we thought it was literally the Olympics. So, you know, the world is just crazy and the parents get super involved. And I remember one year, a mom wouldn't talk to me because I was playing the position her daughter was supposed to play. And it's a mom, you know, so that kind of stuff, that kind of stuff, you naturally progress into volleyball. And do you have your heart set on USC or how does that play out? I started to think about college volleyball around my sophomore year. I had teammates that were committing and I didn't want to stop playing sports. So I just figured, you know, my path was to keep going. And my brother golfed at UCLA. So I was used to watching him compete at that level. He was a college athlete. With USC, it was one of those just feelings, this gut feeling of, I really want to go to this school. I really want to play here. I grew up near Stanford and you know, I would even go to the games and watch USC and I wasn't like some Stanford person that was obsessed with Stanford. That said, I don't think I could ever get into Stanford, but you know, I don't know for some reason, USC was just this school that I really wanted to play at in my sophomore year. You know, I went on an unofficial visit and I met with the coaches and I got toured around and with the team. And that was assurance that, gosh, this is where I want to play. So at the top of this episode, one of the sections in your multi-hyphenate is talking about being a mental health advocate. Talk to me about your mental health going into college. Did you even know about mental health going into college? I knew about mental health, but I really felt like it would not happen to me. And that sounds extremely privileged. And it was a very privileged thought process was, oh, this is something that happens to others, but I'm competitive and I'm strong and I'm ambitious and I'm smart. You know, I thought that 
if I kept my grades high and I was a great athlete and I was, I didn't have to really listen intently to those conversations because really my own belief in myself, I have thick skin and I don't cry about a lot of things. And, you know, I really bought into that stigma of its weakness and I'm never going to consider weakness happening to me. So I just really didn't appreciate the role that the mind played in sports and also life. So interesting the way that you just went about talking about that as if mental health categorically is negative. You were like, I didn't think that mental health would happen to me. Is that kind of how you view it or? Oh my gosh, not anymore. That's just how it was communicated to me at the time. Like from society, it seemed like a weakness and it still does in many facets of life. And, you know, that's why one of my passions now is to speak out against that because the stigma around mental health is what kept me from understanding, accepting, and honoring what I was going through. I was in such denial. So it kept me from facing my issues for a long time. And then it kept me from seeking help. So, and the stigma is a bunch of BS. It's not weakness. It's everyone has a brain. Everyone has well-being. Everyone has mental health. And, you know, that's why I am so passionate now about changing the conversation because I bought into that stigma and it inevitably made things worse for me. So give the hurdlers a snapshot of what kind of your day-to-day looked like as a college athlete at USC. My day-to-day, and I'll never forget the first time it really set in, like, oh shit, I was picking classes as a freshman and meeting with my academic advisor and she, you know, pulled up this big screen of, of my, my, my schedule. And there was this big black box on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And it was from one to six and it was practice. And that was just there. And it was, okay, let's make classes around this. And I had to fill in like 18 units. And it was like, oh, this class sounds exciting. You can, it's at two o'clock. Oh my gosh, this is what I need for my major. You can, it's at four o'clock. And so it was just no, 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 because of volleyball. And I had to find classes that worked in my schedule, which were like the 8 a.m.s and the late night classes. And maybe it was like the fifth class I wanted to take, not the one I did. And people always joke, you know, athletes get first priority of class. It's like, yeah, because we can only take like a handful of them that fit with our schedule. It's not like we get to choose our favorites and we're in the best classes at the school. So my practice block was one to six, six days a week. I had 18 units of class, like regular students. I had tutoring on top of that. And, you know, on top of that, you're meeting with the athletic trainers and you're eating and you're doing homework and you're studying. So there's a lot to fit into the schedule and, I definitely was not prepared at the time to manage it all. When did you join Kappa? (laughs) My freshman year, I rushed. So that's when I uh, joined Greek life. And I remember it being this big decision because I was bought into volleyball. I really wanted to play. I really wanted to compete. I wanted to be taken seriously. No other girl on the team was in a sorority. And so I remember calling my mom and being like, I'm not rushing. I don't want my teammates or my coach to like think I'm not bought in. And I remember my mom being like, 
you want to make friends and you want to have your college experience. And I already see how stressed you are. You had to give up your summer. You've been at USC since July. You did summer school, like just rush and make some other friends. And it was this really sore topic between the two of us. We would be like getting arguments about it. And then I remember all my friends who I went to school with were you know, getting ready for rush. And I felt super left out. And so then I was like, fine, I'll just do it and I'll see how it goes. And yeah, I got into a house and I I really wasn't involved. I mean, I went to a few things here and there, but I definitely, I don't know. I don't feel like someone who was a part of Greek life. (laughs) I, uh, fun fact was a cap at UConn. Oh, sister. A sister. Sister by the bond. (laughs) I interviewed another Kappa once. Low Bosworth is a Kappa. Oh, really? I was just thinking for the sheer fact that you had the time to go through that process on top of the schedule that you just described is mind boggling. I missed a few houses. So I, I didn't even get a rush at all of them. There were some I never even got to visit because it didn't work with my schedule. And then there were some, I remember going into DG with wet hair and no makeup. So it was, it was like sprinting. (laughs) (laughs) sprinting. Well, I'm sure that you were doing a lot of that during your six hour practice block Monday through Saturday. And then you didn't even bring up that you were traveling on the weekends. Yes, that's true. We had two games a week. They were either home games or they were away games. So lots of flights and I still have plane anxiety because of it. Oh my God. Well, good thing you haven't had to be on a plane much over the past 14 months. That's true. (laughs) That is true. Okay. So we've already dove into your busy schedule. It was super hectic. Talk to us about how this started to really affect you and how long until you started to realize that, wow, I'm starting to feel a little burnt out and I don't have a lot of options in this. I think the burnout didn't happen until my sophomore year, but my freshman year, I think I was just trying to be perfect in all aspects of, and, and I guess quick, quick side note, there's so many awesome opportunities in being a student athlete and it's the price you pay for insane luxuries and opportunities. And like, I was an athlete for four years. So clearly there was something about it that I did enjoy, but you know, the realities of what you have to endure to be a student athlete is, is tough. And I wasn't, prepared and I didn't have the tools to figure it out myself. And so, you know, basically my freshman year, I slowly started developing anxiety and it quickly became performance anxiety. I feared making mistakes. I couldn't go to bed at night without worrying about what would happen the next day at practice. And I just was holding back tears in the locker room. It was just so much going on. And I I'm a perfectionist and I am a hard worker and I didn't feel like I could do everything to the best of my ability. And I was constantly like running on E and I didn't tell anyone about that, you know, because I thought they can't know I'm not confident. My coach is going to bench me. We were also the number one team in the country undefeated, like 22 and Oh, I was a walk-on who found my way on the court. Like I didn't want to rock the boat. So it was always swallow your emotions, bury it and just figure it out. You know, I, I I thought that I was weak and I just couldn't handle this level of play and I didn't want to be exposed for being not good enough, which was my biggest fear. And then sophomore year was when I hit that state of burnout where I just didn't even have the energy to care because I had been anxious for like 10 months straight. 
So sophomore year was really that low robotic place for me. And that was my major depressive episode was, was sophomore year. What happens during that major depressive episode beside you kind of just living your life in a way that feels like you're on autopilot? It's really weird to reflect on it because it just doesn't feel like me. And I think that's a really maybe good way to explain depression is it just doesn't feel like you're yourself and, you know, it's not wanting to talk to people. It's not wanting to go anywhere. It's constantly feeling sad. I definitely didn't recognize myself or my thoughts, especially it was miserable. And I think the irony is that I was living my dream. Like that was everything I'd wanted. I just was not enjoying my life at all. When you now reflect on that time and think about living your dream, is there ever a moment where you ask yourself if that was actually the dream or if that was just something like you painted for yourself that, well, this would look really dope. So this is the thing that I'm going to keep doing. It's a great question. However, I do feel confident that that was the dream. I just, like I said, think the biggest disconnect was I didn't have the tools if I could go back and be a freshman at USC right now with my 23-year-old brain and all the therapy and the performance mindset work that I've gone through, I think it would be the, the best thing ever. I think I would thrive even with a tough coach and you know, whatever toxic environment. Like I, I think I could have done it and had a great time. I just was 18 and I didn't have the tools and I didn't understand. And I think everyone has a time in their life where they become self-aware. And my self-awareness didn't really hit nor come to fruition until I was like 20. And Mm -hmm. that was halfway into my college experience. And so I just think with college athletes and student athletes in general, there just needs to be more support. And what would the word be? catching it before it happens. You know, we need to meet with the freshman athletes and say, this is going to be stressful. This is where you go. If if you're feeling down, this is where you go. We have people here for you if you're feeling X, Y, Z. And it was like, I had to go through it, accept it, then seek out those things as opposed to just have that be a part of the process, if that makes sense. I would be remiss if I didn't say that at 24, you're worlds ahead of where so many other people are at 35, 36, 37, 50. Like, oh, you're saying like me right now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're saying. Like, I get that comment a lot. Like, I'm really mature for my age or, you know, whatever it is. And I think, yeah, it happens for everyone at different times. And it's like maybe being thrust into that lifestyle got me there faster. Maybe if I wasn't yeah. a college athlete, I don't think I would have had any of the epiphanies or like, you know, I got to a point where I was like, what is the point of life? And I don't think I would have got, maybe that was supposed to come for me when I had three kids and I didn't like my job, but that was another reality. And instead in this life, I was a college athlete and 
the the curtains were pulled back for me sooner. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You said that sophomore year was this time where you had this hurdle moment of sorts. And then you also mentioned just this idea of being pretty much rock bottom. What does rock bottom truly look like for you when you're a sophomore? Um, oh gosh, rock bottom. And it's interesting too, Emily, because I feel like sometimes the way I talk about my story, at least now is very like when I was depressed or during my depression, but I don't often dive into yeah, well, let's define what what this was for your life. Like, let's go an extra layer. And I think part of that is because of that being my own trauma, you know, and it's hard to think about it, but I appreciate it because I think it's important that when we discuss what these struggles are, we do justice to them. You know, if we're comfortable, we don't sugarcoat them. And my depression experience was, honestly getting to a point where I was fantasizing about swerving into traffic. I came home crying to my roommate at the time saying, I want to die. Even thinking of that now, you know, I've come so far and it's like, I don't feel at all aligned to that mindset, but it's a really dark time. And yeah, I mean, I'm even struggling to describe it because it's just one of those things where you, you can't put words to a feeling. It's such an ugly feeling. And I think that sometimes during our most traumatic moments, we can only think of that feeling and we lose a lot of the details about specific scenarios or situations. Like there are aspects of my story and my hurdle moments back in college where I can describe like every small detail. But then there are other times when I think about just feeling so alone, feeling so unhappy, feeling so self-conscious. And I can't describe to you the first thing about the person that was sitting next to me when I felt that way. All I could tell you was that I was stuck in this hole and I needed to find a rope to pull myself out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I completely agree with you. It's there's, there's things for me where I can like, remember, like, I remember that night coming home to my roommate vividly, but then there's other things that just seem blurry. Like, it's like, I remember like my five worst days from that year, but it's like, I don't remember the year. And I've heard people say like, sometimes when you go through something traumatic personally, you have struggle, you struggle to remember it because it's like you've subconsciously blocked out the pain. Taking a break from today's episode to give some love to my sponsor at Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest delivers delicious food, all built on organic fruits and vegetables right to your door. And my favorite part about it is that Daily Harvest is ready when I am, meaning that everything stays fresh in my freezer until I am ready to enjoy it. So I waste less food. 
Let me tell you, the first thing I did in advance, okay, maybe not the very first thing, but one of the first things that I did in advance of my upcoming move was order Daily Harvest to arrive the day after I did. It's just one less thing for me to worry about and helps me avoid just the never-ending cycle of ordering out. I know that by ordering Daily Harvest in advance, I am gonna have delicious stuff ready for me when I want it. And I just want to note that there is so much variety as well. From their mint cacao smoothie to their tomato basil flatbread, I love topping it with a little bit of mozzarella. And another favorite, their lentil and tomato bolognese harvest bowl. There are just so many options, good for every time of day. Trust me, having these on hand makes a world of difference. Of course, Daily Harvest has a great deal for all of you. Head on over to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code HURDLE25 to get $25 off your first box. Again, that's dailyharvest.com, D-A-I-L-Y-H-A-R-V-E-S-T.com. Enter promo code HURDLE25 to get $25 off your first box. When I reflect on a lot of my years before 18, I certainly have sporadic memories, but at 16, my parents got separated. And so between 16 and 18, when I think about so many things that happened in my junior and senior year, I was in high school at the time. I just have the most sporadic recollection of so many of the things that were going on because I was unhappy. I was lonely. I had gained 30 pounds. I felt uncomfortable in my body. So many things. My self-confidence was absolute crap. Like, so when I look back on that time, it's just one big blur. And all I can tell you is that like, well, that was a really hard time for me. That was it. Right. Right. I completely understand. So I know that you have spoken out before about disordered eating. When was that something that affected you? That was a part of my freshman year. It was a mix of being so anxious and developing this performance anxiety and also trying to diet and lose weight and kind of resist the changes that were happening into my body as I was training as a D1 athlete. And the two, like my anxiety and my eating disorder became like best friends because Mm. I was hyper-focused on restricting and, and not eating a lot so I could lose weight but then I would be so anxious and stressed that my only way to cope became food. And that was like my comfort. And so freshman year, I got into this bad cycle of restricting and binging. And, you know, I I have memories of like walking into practice and grabbing like five power bars to eat in a, like a 15, 20 minute period before practice, because I was just so nervous about practice that I was just eating. That really was jump-started by the anxiety. And then the binging only continued because I was so stressed. And that was like my one comfort. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely relate on that too. I feel like food for me, despite having gone through this deep transformation for me personally, losing a ton of weight in college, learning to ha- learning how to develop a better relationship with food to this day, when I'm stressed, when I'm struggling, the first thing that I'm going to do 
nine times out of 10 is walk into the kitchen and look for something to find some sort of comfort because that brings me back to my childhood and family and happiness and so many things that I'm sure that maybe you too even associate eating with. I definitely used to. That used to be my comfort. I do feel like I've done a lot of work to where I don't think I've, I definitely have not had anything out of the ordinary in terms of emotional eating for a few years now. Of course, you know, there's instances where I'm not hungry, but I eat the cake because I'm happy or I'm, you know, eating more of X, Y, Z because of an emotion. But I think for the most part, I've done the, the inner work to where I understand what I'm seeking and that food is not the answer to that problem. And also because I don't restrict at all, I don't have that urge to get all the food in at once because I'm going to take it away again. I'm not going to take it away again. And that's like a trust I've had to build with myself. So you mentioned your senior year of college that you finally had more time for trying out new things, maybe spending more time with Greek life, but we have kind of not touched on yet what happened junior year. Junior year, you're hopefully on the upswing trying to counteract all of those dark feelings that you were having when you were sophomore. What happens when you get to your junior year? Well, The interesting thing is, so I think I should give some color to this. I would say like freshman year, summer, and then into the start of like sophomore preseason, I was like going down. So, and then I started seeing a therapist. I started getting on meds. And then it was like the end, my sophomore spring is when I get my TED talk, which I still was not well during that time. And I think people sometimes look at that TED talk and they're like, oh, you know, this is your finished product. I'm like, no, this is me on antidepressants, hiding a binge ED. So I gave a TED talk and I didn't address eating disorders. So I was already still ashamed of that dark problem I was dealing with. And then, so my junior year, I wasn't as depressed, but I was certainly not well. And, you know, junior year, I just think truly felt for me, like the last, the last go at it. I did not think I would be able to do a senior season. I didn't want to do a senior season. My junior year, we were in an elite eight game. We were a point away from a final four, one point to go to the final four. And I was in the game thinking to myself, I don't care how this ends. I don't want to be here. Like, I remember having that moment in the game, like holding back tears of like, I just want this game to end. And I would want to be anywhere, but here. And like, even today, it breaks my heart to think that I got to a place athletically that I dreamed of getting to like a point away from a final four. And I was that I was in that position twice in my career. And the second time I didn't even want to be there competing. And that was like, okay, we've lost all sense of self. Like this is not this, you're not yourself. And so, you know, the game ended and I just thought like, I'm not going back you know, I'm going on Christmas break and I I don't want to return to the team. And, you know, at first I proposed it to the athletic department as just a mental health leave. I was just like, I need some time. But in my head, I was like, I'm never coming back. But this was just like my soft out. And so I actually took, I think two months off of maybe two to three months off of volleyball. I was just going to school. I wasn't part of the team really. But then we, there was a coaching change and I was getting better. And I had two months of normal life and no practice. And I frolicked through campus and I really felt like I was able to work on myself. 
that because the whole dynamic of the team was going to be different, like there was a new entire new coaching staff, you know, I was feeling better. I was weaning off my medication. I was looking at it like, okay, there's August, September, October, November, December. Like there's five months, like five months of volleyball. You can, can you finish out your senior year? And so I called my parents and I was like, I think I'm going to go back to team. And if I hate it, I'll quit. Like I was a walk-on. I could leave any day I wanted to. So I was like, I'll go back. And if I don't like it after two weeks, I will quit. And I went back and it was tough as hell. And I'm also not a quitter. Look, if someone walks away from college sports, I completely respect that. Like once I stepped foot in the gym for a senior season, it wasn't really a reality for me to leave halfway. I was kind of like committing to the five months. So um, yeah, I, I finished out my senior year and it was definitely my most confident year, I would say in terms of my mental health and, and playing volleyball. They were all my years as a college athlete were tough, but I think by my senior year, I had more tools and tricks and I was no longer going to therapy because I didn't need to. And, you know, that was a special year for me. And I look back now and I'm so grateful that I played it. Something, the first thing that I want to double click on is you going on meds. When you first spoke with someone about going on medication, what was your thought process, gut reaction? Where did you stand on that? I'm really weird when it comes to external help. Like I don't even drink coffee because I'm high on my own energy is what I like to say. Like any artificial help to my personality, I'm not a fan. I don't even like laughing gas at the dentist office. I'm not a fan of drugs and alcohol. I mean, like, of course I drink with my friends and whatnot and I don't shame others, but like, I like being myself. Like if I have a back injury, I'm like, I don't want the Advil. I'm feeling my pain, you know? So for me to get on meds, natural birth for you, natural birth. No, 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 no. That's the one where I will (laughs) dose me up baby. Um, (laughs) But like, I don't know why I like, I, you know, I don't even drink coffee is the best example I can give. So when I went on had to go on meds, you know, it was tough for me to fathom, but I also was like, I don't want to feel this way anymore. So if this is going to help me, I was okay with it. And I realized that, you know, like any injury, you know, you can't just think stitches and hope that your cut heals. You need external help. You need the doctor to, to do X, Y, Z. You can't just not get the X-ray and think it's going to get better. And I think that's a big disconnect with mental health injuries and visible injuries is that you know, we can fix them. We can't, there is an injury. Like you need the medicine, you need the additional help because it's not going to heal by itself sometimes. And this was where I had to accept the same way I would need stitches in x-ray or the doctor's hands on my foot, the same way I need this medicine to go into my brain to work on the chemistry and the chemicals because they're out of whack right now. When you first went on it, were you surprised or satisfied with how you felt at that beginning phase? The thing about meds is it's not the answer. It's not a quick fix. And if people approach it like, oh, this is a pill to make my depression or my anxiety go away, you're going to be let down because that's not really what it does. I felt like all that my meds did for me were keep me from hitting E on my, on my mental fuel tank. Like I would still drop low, but like once I got to a baseline, there was no like plummeting further. So I just feel like it helped me sustain 
a state where I could manage my feelings, but they didn't make me happy. And and they're not supposed to, you know, they're supposed to neutralize or help regulate. And they're also supposed to be used in hand with doing other work to better our mental health. And I was seeing a psychologist weekly at school and having the meds. So, you know, I think the full scope of it's an aspect of recovering from a mental health issue, you know, at least in my experience. And, you know, there are people who, if you are bipolar or you have another mental illness, you might need meds, might be a part of your routine for life. Whereas for me, I was on antidepressants that were for a period, which was this singular depressive episode. And then I was able to wean off of them. Do you remember anything during that time when you were in those moments as you referred to as like baseline, which actually I would say maybe is a little lower than baseline. (laughs) Do you have any specific memory from that time that you look back on and you were like, that was, that was the worst part? I feel like my worst memories are like past the baseline, but I think in general, just being at that neutral place is you're just numb. Like you're not enjoying your life. I, I just felt numb. I just felt like I was going through the motions with no care or enthusiasm. I was just doing what I was told to and showing up where I needed to. And I think that is the most excruciating is just, it sucks to wake up and want the day to end. When you decided to go off the medication, probably with the support of your psychiatrist, were you successful in doing that the first time? Or did that take you a few times to really kind of get your feedback under you? I was successful. I did do it with, you know, of course the guidance and approval of my psychiatrist and my psychologist. And I did it the correct way with, you know, three fourths of the pills and then half of the pills and then one fourth of the pills. And I was also in an environment where it was designed for me to flourish. I was back with my family. I had no requirements to be a part of anything volleyball related, no practices, no meetings, no high pressure. That was also an important factor was I took myself out of an environment that was pretty much the source of all of my stressors and into an environment where there weren't any. And look, no one was like hurting me or verbally abusing me. Like no one is at fault. I just was not mentally able to be well in just this environment. And it could have been as positive as possible, but for some reason it wasn't clicking for me. And I realized in that elite eight match, I need to remove myself from this. And so, you know, I had to make that decision and it's tough and it's sad and it's, you're letting people down, but ultimately if you're going to change the trajectory of your mental health journey, you're going to have to make a decision that puts yourself first and people don't like to put themselves first, but sometimes we have to, and the people that really support you and love you and want you to flourish in life will be clapping for you as you put yourself first. And, and, you know, so I took myself out of that environment, put myself in a place where I could get better. You mentioned the Ted talk. Talk to me about how the Ted talk happened. Oh God. How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you a really, really short story. So I was journalism major and I love storytelling. And so as I was going through all this stuff, I would of course like 
I'm a big notes person in my phone. Like I'll be like, I'm on a plane right now. It's April 2nd. And these are my five best friends. And these are my biggest problems. Like I, I write down everything. So I had written down some stuff about how I was feeling and my life. And I wanted to talk about it because I didn't want anyone to feel the same way as that I did. And so long story short, Ted X comes to USC. It was like fate. I saw the email. I had 48 hours to send in my application, something like 24, 48 hours. I applied. I got called back. I got cut. Then I got called back at like eight o'clock at night because they were like, we want to see you one more time. Then I got the talk and then the talk went viral. So it was crazy. <laughs> so ultimately it was crazy. So let's then fast forward now. We're like past the part where, you know, you finish your senior season. I mean, in all honesty, this is only a few years ago now. When you are graduating college, what is it that you feel like is your next step? What is it that you feel like is your beckoning purpose? Well, I was really lucky to get a taste of that still being a student. My senior year of school, I started working. So my senior year, I was going to schools to speak like during the semester, the spring semester. And I was creating YouTube videos and gaining subscribers and creating a website. So I was still in school as like things were picking up and it was kind of my sophomore year after the talk. And I wrote this article as well on body image that got sent around. And so throughout my time at SC, I was kind of finding my voice and realizing I wanted to connect with other student athletes and be a part of this change. And so it was really a seamless transition for me because I was at a place where I didn't have to apply for jobs. And so, you know, that was a blessing, obviously, because a lot of times people struggle with purpose when they shift from being an athlete to the real world. But I felt like I'd found mine through my experiences as an athlete. So I was grateful to go from sport directly into what was next. For someone who hears you talking about your mental health journey and feels as though maybe seeking help isn't in their wheelhouse right now, but they still want to get better. What are some of the first pieces of advice that you offer to them? Well, that's a great question because obviously accessibility to mental health resources is a huge issue. And I was extremely lucky that I went to a university where when I did say, hi, I'm depressed, you know, they rolled out the red carpet and I got the psychologist and the psychiatrist and the meds and the appointments. And, you know, that was an option for me because of the school I went to. And there's lots of schools that don't have that. So, you know, that's a huge issue, number one. And that's something that at the Hidden Opponent, the nonprofit I founded, that's one of our goals is to try to work towards actionable change so that that doesn't have to be an issue. If you are struggling with your mental health and you don't have access to that psychologist or that professional, you still have access to people in your life that love and care about you. And you definitely, definitely should tell someone in your life, just open up to anyone about what you're going through. You don't have to suffer in silence. You know, you never know what can happen or what can come from just opening up to one person that you know. And we all have people that we talk to on a daily basis. So Number one, please let someone in on what you're going through. And then secondly, and this is definitely not a substitute for personal one-on-one work with a counselor, but we live in a generation where there are 
thousands of elite psychologists, therapists, counselors posting their teachings and their philosophies for free on the internet. There are hundreds of Instagram accounts, books that cost $15, websites, podcasts of psychologists who are essentially leading group therapy for free. So I would say, do a deep dive, look into some of those things. You know, a variety of the work I do on myself now isn't meeting with a therapist, but it's these books I read and these psychologists I listen to and their work that I devour on a daily basis. So I would also say, you know, don't sleep on the free resources that are out there. Um, And then of course, going to those places like the JED website, the National Alliance for Mental Illness website, who, who lists out some of those resources that are available to the public as well. Obviously, I'm going to ask you if you have a hit list, so to speak, or any recommendations uh, to kick off the hurdler's journey in perhaps looking into some of these free mental health resources. Yes. So you mentioned Gervais earlier. So obviously, Mm -hmm. Dr. Michael Gervais is fantastic. If any of you are athletes or high performers, just looking to get a grip on your anxiety and your thoughts and your self-talk. He has a podcast called Finding Mastery, which is free. And his Instagram account, Dr. Mike Gervais, is free to follow. Also, Dr. Nicole LaPera is a psychologist who focuses more on trauma and inner enlightenment. So she has a Instagram account called The Holistic Psychologist. She has a podcast that just came out called, I think, Self-Healer Circle, where she's doing a discussion of the chapters of her book. So if you can't even afford her book, you can listen to her podcast where she's doing breakdowns. She also has a YouTube channel where she has a whiteboard and she walks through concepts. I feel like I'm literally in therapy as I watch those videos. So I think those are two great places to start. You also mentioned that you and these are your words, no longer needed therapy anymore when you were a senior. I'd love if you could just for a moment kind of touch on what empowered you to make that decision and perhaps offer some advice to someone who may not know that there can be an opportunity to go to therapy, take a break, go back in. Like what's what was your kind of thought process with that? And what would you say to someone who's not sure if they're ready to leave theirs? I mean, I simply was just showing up with nothing to talk about. I was showing up in a good mood with nothing to talk about. And that was just happening for a few weeks. And I realized I came, I learned, and I'm handling these things in my own life. And I don't have anything to talk with you about because I'm able to do it myself now. And so, you know, I think it's important to, at least I'm someone who wants to figure out ways to navigate and manage things in my life. And when I get those tools, I want to practice applying them. And then I get to a place where I can apply them. And and that's where I was. And so I just naturally realized these aren't serving me anymore. And so I I stopped going. And of course, you know, there's times now I I still go. I went two weeks ago for one appointment, just because I was really struggling with this one thing in my life. And so I went to talk for an hour about it and it was great. And I felt like I got answers and I got a look at the situation I couldn't get to myself. And that's awesome. And I didn't schedule another one because problem felt solved for me, or at least felt like I had the tools to handle it when it arises again. So I would just say, if you're going and you're like pulling teeth, trying to figure out what you should talk about in session, maybe, maybe you have outgrown it for this time in your life and you can always go back. I also think it's like important to reiterate that you can... I mean, maybe outgrow is a strong word, but there are different approaches to therapy. And so you may have worked with one therapist for a handful of months and get to a place where you're like, I feel like I've 
kind of run this course. And now either I want to work with someone who maybe approaches things a little bit differently, or just like your experience, you're like, I'm good for now. Like I feel really confident in where I'm at and that I can exercise the tools that I've been provided with in my own way on my own time. Exactly. Yep. People come to your social media page. They see a woman that is a proud mental health advocate, a TEDx speaker, and so many more things. When you look in the mirror, what is it that you see looking back at you? Oh my gosh. I see a normal girl who still has lots of struggles, lots of worries, lots of fears, lots of self-doubt. I see, I think what most people see when they look in the mirror is the parts about themselves that they think they need to fix and that they think they need to improve on. And so, you know, I know people come to my page and they think the things that you described and they think, oh, this girl's figured it out. I have absolutely not figured it out. So I would say I just still see the same person who's trying to do the best she can, knows she has so much more to learn and is doing her best. (laughs) With knowing that you have so much more to learn, again, kind of revisiting this term that we keep going back to of mental health advocate, do you go through times where you may struggle a little bit with that in that people come and they expect you to have your shit together. And some days when you're like, I'm supposed to have my shit together and it just is not clicking. What do you do with that feeling? I lean into that because that's, I think my whole appeal is that I'm not an expert. I'm not someone that has the answers. I feel like I've kind of created a following who knows that that's the case. Um, you know, I, in a really special way, don't feel like I have to have all of that. And I think that's kind of what maybe does attract people to my, my page is that I'm not going to pretend like I have it all figured out and I don't always have the inspiration and I don't know the answers and I'm still figuring things out and I still go to therapy when I need it. And I still have imposter syndrome and I still am mean to myself. And so I think that you know, that's a really cool aspect of maybe what I've tried to build around this conversation is, Hey, I don't have the answers. I'm just sharing as I go. What are you excited about right now? Tonight I'm going over to my mom's, uh, her (laughs) and my Yaya are making Greek food and I'm pumped to eat it. (laughs) Shout out to any Greeks listening and Christos Anesti as Greek Easter was this past weekend. (laughs) My friend here, if you look back and you think about the Victoria back in college. It's let's say like mid sophomore year, you're going through the thick of it. Right now you have an opportunity to offer yourself one piece of advice. Looking back on that hurdle moment right now, what do you tell yourself? Oh gosh, it's tough because I know that that sophomore girl would not want to hear any of it. She wouldn't believe any of it. I think I would say something like, this is going to be sound so cheesy. I don't know why I feel like I'm in a movie right now, but I think I would say something like, so much is going to come from this, this suffering. You know, I think at the time I didn't think there's a reason for it, but clearly now I see that there was. And so I would just tell her like, I know you'll never understand this. I know you don't get why, but so much of the joy in your future is going to come from this current struggle. And I think that that can apply to many people going through it right now. So true. Victoria, how do the hurdlers keep up with you? How do they follow along with you? Give me all the details. Lovely hurdlers. You can keep up with me on IG at Victoria Garrick and you'll pretty much find everything from there. And then you can also 
listen to my podcast, Real Pod, which um, you need to come on. So we need to figure that out. Tell me when, girl. (laughs) Tell me when. Perfect. I'm over at Emily Abadi and at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.